This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg, uh, also known as Dear Prudence. With me in the studio this week is author and activist Aya De Leon, who teaches creative writing at UC Berkeley and is the author of the Justice Hustlers feminist heist series, including Side Chick Nation, the first novel published about Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Aya, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for teaching me about a new thing that I can do with Jello the <laughs> next time that I make Jello. Yes, I'm a fan. My one go-to uh, like Jello adjacent uh, strategy in life is a recipe that I like to call infinite pudding. Oh, that I do reserve. tell. I, it's only for stress eating when <laughs> when you need to like um, just fill your body with material so there's no yes. more room for feelings, and you get a tub of like cozy shack. <laughs> style pudding you yes. know the, the big one that weighs like a, a heavy tub. softball yes. and then you get a can of whatever type of whipped topping you prefer well and then yes. you give it a big big crown yes and then you eat down such that like every <laughs> bite has like seven eighths um whipped topping and, ah. and one eighth pudding seems i like, like the ratio ratio is important it seems like it's going to be too much but it's not because whipped <laughs> topping like folds instantly as soon as you put it in your mouth and it gets like salty and good and um it'll take you out I, I like that you have a plan. I like that you're prepared there. I do have to say, even though I say jello, I guess technically it's gelatin. Sure. But the one thing I have to say is there is this incredible memoir out there of the jello family. No. Yeah, it's called Jello Girls. And it's basically about jello and the patriarchy that I read last year that was amazing. That so sounds so, fantastic. Every, will... Now, every time people say jello, I think of memoirs about. I will 100% <laughs> be reading that. That sounds remarkable. <laughs> Um, I'm glad that you brought up uh, business as it relates to the patriarchy, because that just takes us so neatly into our very first question, which is just truly remarkable. Truly. And um, I'm going to go ahead and read this one because I want to um, and because it's just stunning. So the subject is, I applied for a job. The hiring manager called my husband. Dear Prudence, I recently applied for a job at a company I had worked at once before years ago. My husband also worked there for years after I did and is friendly with the management team. He's not there anymore. My husband just told me that the hiring manager, Tom, called him to ask what kind of employee my husband thought I would make. I did not list my husband as a reference, and the idea that a question about my qualifications and personality went directly to my husband makes me extremely uncomfortable. I have an interview coming up, and I'm sure that they'll hire me. It's a pretty low-stakes job, and I don't plan on being there for very long. But my question is, when and how should I address this? There's no way I'm going to let it slide. It's definitely inappropriate and unethical, and probably breaks some employee privacy laws. But should I take the job and address it directly with Tom? Or decline the job and tell them that this breach of professionalism is why? What is this, freaking madmen? 
Oh my God. Yes. Uh, and I feel like that's what we're learning these days that life kind of is Mad Men. Um, but you know, what's a gal to do, right? This is the, this is this really interesting question of ethics and strategy, Mm -hmm. right? I think it's great that she mentions that it's low stakes and that she wouldn't necessarily stay there that long. Cause I think that that really puts a different spin on it. I was was like, I desperately want this job. That was a relief too. Cause it feels like given that this is a low stakes job and you sound like if you declined it, you'd be okay. That gives you a lot of room to maneuver. Yeah, and I I think it's also important to add um, the cussing Tom out. I think we should put that on the table, um, you know, because we want to just have a wide range of options. Mm -hmm. So if this is you and you think, I can kind of take or leave this job. My preference might be to have it for a while, but I'm not going to be very upset if I cuss them out and I burn that bridge. What would your first approach be? Would it be, I'm not going to do the interview and here's why. I'm going to go to the interview and say, hey, by the way, do you normally call the spouses of people applying to work here? What are you going to do? Well, I think one of the things that would be interesting is, you know, if we think about it, maybe from more of an activist perspective is like, um, you know, undoubtedly Tom's completely out of pocket behavior is probably affecting other people. So one of the things that you might want to do is, uh, you know, set up the interview, figure out who it's with, Mm -hmm. especially if it's multiple, if it's with multiple people, including Tom, that might be a great forum in which to call Tom out. And then, um, yeah, I, 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 it sounds like she wants the job, but that she's not, trying to be quiet or hidden or play along um, in order to get it. So I think it might be interesting to see if it can be two birds, one stone, like a forum in which to call this out and also to have a great interview and get the job. I think that that's a great strategy. Um, I I wonder if it would also be helpful to get in touch with HR either before or after that interview, just to say, I hope that you are addressing this as a company because I would hate for this to happen to somebody else. That's super smart. And I... I tend to have the stealth approach, so my leaning would be to do it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think either way would be good, and you know, especially if the people in the if the people in the interview are like, "Oh yeah, this is terrible," it might be great to have a follow up call, right? Because you never know; people can say anything in an interview, like, "Oh, we're very concerned about that," but you know, it's worth putting in that call to HR, yeah, um, and complaining officially. I, I think that's probably what I would do in this situation: is have the contact with HR afterwards, just to really make it clear. As you said, they might be like, "In the moment, gosh." that's terrible but then the sort of like comfortable well tom already works here and we don't really you know want to make that big a fuss just a kind of reminder of you should probably be asking tom if he's done this before that's right um possibly uh you know disciplining him potentially taking him off of hiring teams all the way up to and including you know letting tom go Right. And funny thing with the uh, with these kinds of guys of the world, it's rarely an isolated incident. Right. Because to call someone's male partner Mm -hmm. to like check on them is so completely out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's so completely out of pocket. It's such bad judgment. And I think that that would be the way to bring it up in the interview. I think it would it would be to say, you know, um, there's a lot about this job that is appealing and exciting to me. I've had a really good experience so far. One thing has really stood out to me um, as being very unprofessional and very surprising. I've never encountered this in all my years of interviewing. Um, and and maybe even to frame it as like, uh, you know, Tom contacted my husband, who I have not listed as a reference, to ask about my qualifications. Um, do you customarily do this as a company? Like really put their feet to the fire. I'm yeah. like, do you have a habit of asking like female applicants what their husbands think of their work? Oh my God. Because I'd really like to know that before taking this job if that's something that you'd expect of me. 
That's a great way to phrase it because I think, you know, in terms of what's appealing about the job and what's unappealing and, you know, that I think a key part of it is like, I don't want to work for a company that uh, approves of that kind of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So and then the only other thing that I would throw out there is I don't know if it breaks employee privacy laws. It certainly cannot hurt to contact a lawyer and ask a question. Most lawyers will do at least an initial over-the-phone consultation for free or at a reduced rate. I'm not suggesting that, like, um, that should be your first move. But uh, if you want to kind of go in knowing the, like, legal landscape of this particular conversation, certainly go for it. There's nothing to lose there, again. Yeah, and I think that this is a question, you know, and, and I think a lot of the questions bounce back and forth between the sort of what do you want to do for your individual situation and what's the greater opportunity for activism here? Right. Yeah. So I would say before you, I mean, it also may very well be that you go to the interview, you say this, their response is such that you decline the job then and there. But I do think since you're um, kind of unclear right now whether or not you'd be willing to take the job if they really took steps to handle the Tom situation, um, to not decline it first, to have that conversation first, see how they respond. And then, you know, either they will withdraw offering you the job or you will decline it um, or something else will happen. Right. And it's also possible that, you know, there are uh, people at the organization who have been waiting for a good reason to to give Tom the boot right. or to give Tom a heavy reprimand. And, you know, sometimes there's someone who really kind of represents a different era at a company. Mm-hmm. Um and this could be an opportunity. Yeah. But I just, I, I cannot imagine the thoughts that were going mm-hmm. through Tom's head when it was, well, there's a list of references here, but I think I'd like to call her husband. Wow. Who she doesn't work with. Um, yeah. It, it's really, truly remarkable. And again, maybe in that moment, if if Tom is there, um, it would be a little bit fun and also helpful to say something like, I'm so curious to know what your thought process was during this moment, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> what made you make that choice? Um, please update us. This is one yeah. where I would love oh to my God, hear right? back. We um, want the follow-up. I really want to know how that goes. And good luck. I hope that whether you take this job or not, the next job you have um, doesn't really involve your husband in any way. Oh, my God. That would be nice. All right. This next letter is all you. Great. The subject is how much to disclose at work. Dear Prudence, I am a working mom with three children. My oldest has recently been diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. Diagnosed in quotes because SPD is not an officially recognized disorder, but it shares many qualities in common with other sensory disorders such as autism. He goes to occupational therapy three times a week. I am luckily blessed with a direct superior who understands my family life and has allowed me to flex my schedule in such a way so as to accommodate my son's needs. I am salaried, not hourly. My issue comes to the common complaint of coworkers. How do I handle the intrusive ones who directly question me and my comings and goings? Oh, wow, leaving already? Seems like you just got here. I'm waffling on a generic script, and I worry that people might take their concerns about my work to my boss. I get my work done satisfactorily, and I dislike having to explain my son's condition to every single nosy Nancy and Tom with whom I share a building. I don't feel comfortable saying my son is autistic, as he isn't officially diagnosed as such, but trying to explain the intricacies of sensory processing in developmental toddlers is... 
long-winded. I guess, and I think it makes me feel like I'm justifying or excusing my schedule. Frankly, it's none of their business, and I'd like to tell them that in explicit terms, but that's not very acceptable office behavior either. I realize this is low stakes, but I foresee this problem growing as my son does and maybe requires other services. So I I don't think that this is low stakes. I mean, I'm really glad that the letter writers... um, like direct supervisor and upper level management is totally on her team here. But I think having to navigate coworkers who make it really, really clear um, that they feel like your schedule is their business um, and are already sending pretty obvious passive aggressive signals that they want to know more about your personal life, um, that that could absolutely make your work life really difficult. So I, I think it makes total sense that this is bothering you and that you um, need to figure out ways to get either help shutting it down or to shut it down yourself. One thought that I have is with a supportive supervisor, sometimes you can have an ally Mm -hmm. who um, pulls people aside if they've made really intrusive comments. And, you know, you can kind of check in with that person and say, you know, that that your supervisor could say to those folks, you know, there's some information that you don't have and it's cool with me and this is legit. So that's one thing that um, can sometimes help if it's individuals, but if it's the culture as a whole, then sometimes you need a bigger kind of more universal solution. Yeah, I, I think that that's smart. And I think it makes sense to have a script for yourself and also to tell your boss, here's what I plan on saying individually. Um, but especially if any of these coworkers also report directly to your boss, then your boss has real grounds here just to take them aside and say like, hey, um, I need you to not inquire with other coworkers about their schedules that they have worked out directly with me. That's right. Like, I'm aware of the schedule. I, it, I have approved it. It is for good reasons. You don't need to know more. As long as work is getting done, I need you to not make these comments. That's right. And also the supervisor needs to let them know, I'm the supervisor, right? It's not actually your job to worry about that. And it's interesting, in the past, um, when I supervise teachers, um, I actually say explicitly in staff meetings, everybody here has a different set of situations. Mm -hmm. So it may seem like, well, why is that person doing this? And I'm not, or why is this person coming and going in a different way? And, you know, I just let people know folks are, um, folks have different situations, which mean that their schedules are different and don't feel no way about it. You know, I think it's important also to have that culture where it's not one size fits all. Right. And I think that's a really good opportunity for bosses just in general to kind of take the lead on making sure everybody knows, look, I'm checking in with all of you individually about what we need from you at work and what you need in terms of work-life balance. Um, I'm doing my best. That is my job. Um, If you have any concerns about your own schedules, please bring them to me. But unless somebody else's schedule is affecting their ability to like help you get your own work done, um, trust that that's not something you need to worry about. Um, Yeah. And I think part of what's so difficult, you know, in our society is that the society is so individualistic, right? And so um, whenever things aren't one size fits all, other people can feel like they're being ripped off or they're at a disadvantage, right? And I think that that's just one of the things that's challenging about this culture, um, that historically in any given job, a lot of times there are one set of people who are working really hard and another set of people who are coasting and taking advantage. And it's unfortunate because it seems like most of the time that doesn't get called out Mm -hmm. because they're, you know, a lot of times are reasons having more to do with who gets favored in the society. Sure. Um, 
for why some people work harder than others in given environments. But it's interesting when someone particularly is doing caretaking, Mm -hmm. someone who's in a caretaking role has to, um, there are, or if somebody has a, a disability that they're working with, those are the times, right, that people are always being sort of called on the carpet and asked to explain and folks right. get really invasive into their business. And it's good that um, this mom is pushing back against that. And she doesn't have to disclose everything about her family and her children in order to get the accommodation that she needs and deserves. Right. Yeah. I, and I think that there's a lot of truth to, like, who gets scrutinized the most. Um Tom should be getting more scrutiny. This working mother should be getting less. Exactly. Um, so I, I think your instinct here to not share a lot of personal details with people who have already kind of made it clear that they think you're just bailing on work to go to the movies or something. I think that's a good one. I don't trust that people who have already displayed that tendency sort of towards nosiness and rudeness are going to respond well to hearing about your particular situation. So I, I would say in addition to having that conversation with your boss to just also say either yeah, I've worked out a schedule with supervisor's name um, and everything's good. Let me know if you need anything in particular from me. But if there's nothing that you need, I'd rather not discuss my work schedule with you. Um, I think that's pretty appropriate. It's still relatively polite. Um, You can also just say like, yep, you know, if somebody wants to make a dig, like leaving already, seems like you just got here. You can just kind of calmly look back at them and say, yes, I am leaving. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, I think the other thing Whenever people are being passive aggressive, the other interesting opportunity is to ask them if they want to be direct, hmm. right? So um, you can also say, yeah, are is there something you want to say or mm-hmm. is there something you want to ask or is there a concern that you have here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... You know, sometimes that can surface different things um, that can be useful in a team. You know, in some ways, it depends how closely you're working with this group of people as a team. Yeah. Um, Like with some teams, it's like, you know, we're doing parallel work, but they don't it doesn't overlap that much. And someone may have some feelings about my work, but um, ultimately it's not relevant. But then there are other times where those relationships really do matter. So sometimes it can be useful to push, you know, depending on the relationship and ask, hey, so-and-so, is there something you want to ask me? Like, or is there something you're trying to say here? Yes. Like, what are you trying to say? Yeah. Um, And then, you know, to really confront that directly too, um, because sometimes something will come out like, well, you know, it seems like you're not pulling your weight. And that can be the opportunity to say, actually, I am, and I've checked this, uh, and I've checked this with our supervisor, and it's all good. So I'm going to ask you to really back off there mm-hmm. and trust the supervisor and trust me. Right. Yeah. Because if there's like a, an actual complaint, like I, you know we're behind on this project, and I've been trying to get a hold of you for something, that's something you can actually address. And if it's just, it seems like you leave early a lot. At that point, you can either say. Yep, uh, I have like particular, you know, unavoidable caretaking needs that I need to handle. Um, I don't want to go into detail about that, but trust that I have spoken about it with our supervisor. Or, you know, if you don't want to even share that much um, at that point, I think you could say, if this is not a concern about a project we're working on right now, I'd like you to stop making comments about my work schedule. Um, Yeah. And the other thing that I have to say is it is an unfortunate truth that so many people have really bad communication skills mm -hmm. and they use passive aggression 
aggressiveness because folks really don't know how to just ask what it is they want to know, or better yet, say what it is they need to say. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they really need to be talking to the to your supervisor, like, hey, how come, sh- you know, she's leaving, coming late and leaving early, and I've got to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, maybe that's a question that they need to take up with the boss, but, you know, because they're intimidated or whatever, they're asking you. Right. So it can also be an opportunity for your colleagues to grow a bit. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I think that's the best that the, the we can do with that one for right now. So I'm going to move ahead to our next letter, which is leaving the workplace behind and getting into some really um, complicated family dynamics. And the subject of this one is moving home. Dear Prudence, I have dual citizenship. My parents met and married in my father's home country, but my mother took me back to the United States for a visit and filed for divorce. I've only seen my father twice since then. The court costs and travel were too much. My mother, as much as I love her, could only ever articulate my father's infidelities as a reason for my exile. I barely spoke English when I came here, and my mother refused to speak my native language to me, since we were, quote, American now. I used to dream in my first language, remember my grandparents and cousins and father, and wake up crying because I knew I forgot something precious. I'm in college now. I've been in contact with my father secretly since I turned 17. I want to go back home, if only to know if it is really my home. I don't want to hurt my mother, but she did everything in her power to try and erase me, straighten my hair, talk to strangers about my, quote, tan, and insist on calling me by my American nickname rather than my actual birth name. She loves me, but just the parts of me that are hers. I can't live as what feels like half a person. I am leaving my college and plan to transfer overseas. All the paperwork is done, but I still haven't told my mother. I want to but my throat closes up every time I try. I love her, and she's still my mom, but I need this. How do I tell her? Wow, well, this, you know, is a heartbreaking story, and unfortunately, it's not an uncommon story, you Mm -hmm. know, having to do with immigration, assimilation, and, um, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, when this person is saying literally that their throat that their throat closes every time they go to speak Mm -hmm. those words it may be that you need to write a letter to your mom Mm. you know like clearly you have the words here whether or not you're able to speak them in the moment face to face with your mom you might need to write her a letter one strategy that i know of um that can be useful is to write a letter and be face to face and read it out loud Mm -hmm. because you know in the emotions of the moment it may be hard to find the word But sitting down over time and going back to a letter and getting to revise it a few times can be useful. Um, And, you know, if you don't have the words in the moment, you could even hand it to her. You could also give it to her ahead of time or mail it to her Mm -hmm. as needed. Um, And I think, you know, the thing I want to say is it's very powerful here that you have this clarity that there's a piece of you that's missing that you want to go and reclaim, you know, and reclaim you know, in your late teens or young adulthood, I think that's really powerful. And I have to say that um, it, you know, it can be difficult for many, uh, for many folks who are immigrants living this hyphenated life, right? There's a part of you 
that is from the homeland that um, is very powerful and that you don't feel complete without it. At the same time, having grown up in the United States and having all of that forced assimilation coming from your mom and coming from the larger society, you know, it's not the same at, in any way as growing up in the homeland. And, you know, so many folks uh, who are immigrants or from immigrant families, you know, feel torn in that way. And so I want to say that although that's unfortunate, it is really normal um, in that we live in such a racist and xenophobic society that um, folks from other countries, particularly the global South, really, really feel that pressure. And, you know, the only thing that I will also say about your mom, it's um, that I can only imagine um, what kind of fear or terror or the impact of xenophobia and or racism Mm -hmm. must have been on her that she felt the need to sort of force you to assimilate in that way. And I assume herself as well. So while I have, I have some compassion for her and I think you're doing what you need to do. Yeah. I, I I totally get in this letter that the letter writer um, doesn't want to hurt their mother. Um, I also think you have, uh, you're you're doing the thing that you need to right now. That's good. Um, what you are doing is not inherently hurtful. It's only hurtful insofar as she chooses to feel threatened by the other part of who you are. Um, and so I really think um, going in and and saying this to her, it, she I think based on how she has behaved in the past, she will probably be hurt. Um, I also think that that's uh, not just necessary, but okay. Um, and I think you should, as much as you can, um, try to relieve yourself of the burden of comforting her here um, or feeling responsible for any hurt feelings she may have. Um, she hurt you in in pretty substantial and lasting ways. Um, and that's as real as her love for you. One doesn't have to um, contradict the other. So if part of you feels like, if I acknowledge to my mom the ways in which she hurt me, I'm turning my back on her or, um, you know, uh, overriding her own pain. You're not doing any of those things. All you're doing is telling your own story, articulating your own needs, making a connection to your own family that you have every right to have. Um, So I hope that there are other people in your life, potentially on your father's side of the family, potentially friends you have made at college, potentially friends that you will make when you visit your home soon. Um, who can help you hold both of those things at the same time. Cause I really want you to have support in case your mom comes back with, I can't believe you've been doing this secretly. How could you, you're hurting me. Um, Cause you're just not. And frankly, you know, the fact that you could not tell her this before is she engineered that situation. That's right. You know, she comes to you with, how could you do this without telling me? It's like, you left me no room to tell you. That's right. And, you know, I have to say, it's interesting. As I look at this letter again, I was reading the mom as also from the home country. But as I'm looking at at it again, um, it says the parents met in the father's home country. So I'm not sure where mom is from, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's really, I think that that's a key question because I think it's sort of like, what are we looking at of moms? Mm -hmm. Like, is mom... um, a white American and dad is a man of color from the global South. Um, and those dynamics really matter. Yeah. Right. So if mom is a white American, then one of the things that can be very difficult um, in multiracial families are when 
the parents' racism shows up Mm -hmm. and targets the children of color in the family, Mm -hmm. right? And so if that's what we're looking at, um, then really this is a powerful move that you're making to resist racism. And your mom's uh, request or expectation, uh, you know, that we're imagining that she'll um, be upset uh, that you're in contact with your father. It's such an incredibly racist move mm-hmm. to cut you off from them right. and not to understand that you need that. You know, currently, part of the conversation here in the U.S. with so many transracially adopted young people, you know, it's understood that even if a white parent or white parents don't come from the culture that their kid comes from, that part of parenting that child is making sure to support that connection. And not supporting that connection for you is really a form of neglect, you know, and a form of racism. There are also other possibilities as well, like mom could be from a different country, could be a couple of generations as a person of color in the United States. And I just really encourage you to think about what are those dynamics, because there's a lot of complexity in this family. But I really appreciate what Danny said about um, really taking care of yourself and thinking about um, how to move forward and that you, you know, you'll probably have to do it without your mom's blessing. And that's part of your liberation. Yeah. Yep. And and I think too, yeah, there, there's a number of possibilities here. And I think uh, what's going to be key for you, letter writer, is, you know, the the stuff that you put in here about, you know, she did everything in her power to try and erase me. She straightened my hair. She uh, talked about my skin color as if it were a tan, which, again, suggests to me, again, I don't know what internal dynamics were going on for her, but certainly has a ton to do with um, racism, colorism, and, and, you know, not allowing you contact with your other side of the family. Um that is just important to name as hurtful and racist. Um, and and I, I get that that might feel overwhelming to say to your mom. So again, if you can talk it out with other people beforehand, ask for like, I'm going to need you to be on hand to call afterwards because I know that's going to be a hard afternoon. Um, but you get to say that. And that's that doesn't right. mean you don't love your mom. And that doesn't mean that you're hurting her. That just means you're saying you did these things that hurt me. Um, And I want to go try to find some healing from that. And I can't get that from you. That's right. And and good luck. I'm so glad that you've been able to reestablish meaningful contact with your father. I hope that this, um, you know, um, transferring colleges and and going to school um, near your father and the rest of his family is like wonderful and nurturing and exciting and that you feel like you're able to – establish an adult identity for yourself separate from the ways in which your mother tried to control and repress you. Um, But it's just what you are doing is good. Uh, And if your mother is hurt by it, then um, that's on her. And she can either try to honestly look at the harm she's caused you and try to change and make amends, or she can choose to um, double down on the choices that she's made. And if she does choose that, that's when you get to just really lovingly say, what you're choosing is wrong. I cannot help you with it. I hope you turn around. That's right. But, you know, allow yourself to take space from your mom. Yeah. yeah. It's obviously going to be very critical for your growth and development. Like you've had some teen uh, number of years in mom's sphere of influence and world. And, you know, the other thing that I'll just say in terms of... um 
going to the homeland, right? I'm someone with roots in the Caribbean, um, as well as uh, roots in the U.S. And, you know, going to the global south is, uh, you know, I I remember having lots of fantasies and ideas about how it would be. And then there are real challenges there. But, you know, that's also um, really important in terms of this sojourn, right? This, this um cultural reclaiming journey that you're going on. Um, Hang in there with that and continue to find and build real relationships with your family and other folks that you meet there and, you know, find like-minded folks because, you know, there can be real challenges there. Um, And at the same time, that is, those are your roots. That is who you are. It's so important to contend with that. Yeah. And just good luck. And again, I just really, I I really want to echo what you said earlier, just to take care of yourself in this moment, like the ways in which your mother has made it clear your whole life long, you cannot talk about this. I don't want you to know about it. I don't want you to name it. It makes sense to me that your throat closes up. I think the kind of, you know, neglect, you know, and abuse that she... um, Repression. Yeah, gave to you. um, That's why your throat closes up. That's what your mom wanted. She was trying to close up your throat so that you couldn't speak those words. And I know that you also know that she loves you. It's clear that you're able to hold those two things in tension. But um, if you need to tell her at a distance and say, I can't be there for your response to this, that is fine. Or even bring a friend. Mm -hmm. So like if mom wiles out, you're like, I have a witness Mm -hmm. and I have someone who has my back. And, you know, I think it really depends. Like we don't, you know, we know a little bit about your mom's behavior in this area. Some folks are, you know, able to hear stuff and and take it in and be quiet. Other folks push back. There may be other abusive dynamics. So definitely um, what I would say is there's never, in, in a situation like this, there's no such thing as too much self-care. Yeah. So like bringing someone or um, sending her the letter so that you're not there when she first reads it anything like that that you might want to do to feel comfortable and take care of yourself, you're totally entitled to. And sometimes people who have those sort of hostile um, or sort of abusive dynamics may say, well, you couldn't even tell me to my face or you wrote it in a letter. It's like, you know what? With the kind of dynamic that she has, whatever you need to do to take care of yourself is justified, whether she agrees with it or not. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's going to be really helpful is reminding that uh, reminding yourself that even if she does not agree with you, that does not mean that you've done something wrong. And good luck. All right, I think this next letter is all you. Okay, the subject is hostile classmates. Dear Prudence, I'm a 32-year-old nursing student with five months left before I graduate. Within my cohort, I'm part of an eight-person group, the members of which are dependent on each other for group presentations, projects, and discussion posts. We also go through clinical and labs together. The other members of my group are probably decent people in many ways, but I'm not interested in socializing with them. I tried in the beginning, but their conversations are pretty full of fat-hating comments as well as casual homophobia. I'm fat and queer, on top of which I'm an introvert with social anxiety, and I made the decision mid-program that I would stop forcing myself to interact with them more than necessary. I do interact with them kindly, genuinely, and openly when we have to be together for school purposes. Recently, we worked together on a group project. As I was leaving, someone said, bye, aggressively and sarcastically. 
I assumed they thought I hadn't put in enough work, so I offered an apology slash ask if this was the case, but all I got was a text that said, all good. I found out through a member afterward that the group was upset that I had left as soon as the work portion was done. They had expected me to stay and socialize. Two of the group members wouldn't even look me in the eye the next day, and only three spoke to me during the four hours we were together. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here. I try not to let their attitudes get to me, but their treatment feels dehumanizing. Am I in the wrong for not pushing through and socializing with them more? I just can't understand such hostility when my biggest offense is declining to hang out. I want to get through the remaining five months civilly. My grades literally depend on it. I could probably switch groups if I wanted, but that seems like an escalation of the situation and not worth it with so little time left. Do you have tips for not caring that others are obviously gossiping about you? Based on the response to my apology chance for them to tell me what they were feeling, I'm going to wager that more direct communication won't yield the best results. Well, I'm worried that so many of these people seem to want to go into uh, a profession that involves caring for people. Right. Um, I, I sort of hope all of them wash out in the next five months and decide to go do a job where they don't have to interact with human beings in need. Because I worry about their patients, especially patients of theirs who may be fat and or queer. Hello. Um. You know, I, 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 my my theory here is that you are reading the situation exactly correctly. They are trying to dehumanize you. Um, they don't think of fat and queer people as people in the same way that they think of themselves as people. And your very existence is a reminder that it is um, challenging to see somebody regularly while also trying to think of them not as a person. So you make them uncomfortable by existing and wanting to be, you know, spoken to politely or looked at in the eye when you're in the room. And that's so not on you. Um, but yeah, well, absolutely what you are witnessing is the panic, confusion, and anger of somebody who is trying hard to dehumanize you and is like, why won't you let me? Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, happens that uh, can be extra confusing is the casual homophobia and fat phobia in their comments lets you know that they have those views. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, um, you know, how out you are to them as a queer person, you know, but part of what can happen in those um, hostile dynamics is people are looking for a pretext to dislike you or be mad at you or blame you. Right. And this not hanging out has become this perfect pretext, right? The truth is that they obviously have deep-seated prejudices that target identities that you have. But yet, and funny how it always works, right, um, with these oppressive dynamics, they, uh, or at least some of them, have turned it around that you're rejecting them right. or that you don't like them or that you don't want to hang out with them. And then that becomes the pretext for not looking at you, speaking to you passive-aggressively. And I think... Um, that's just in terms of trying to decode mm -hmm. or just give you additional language for what's happening. As far as what to do, it's a tough one yeah. um, because you are dependent on this group of people. And sometimes it can be useful to sort of conform to a degree um, just to smooth things over because as a student, the way that the educational situation is structured, you're in a vulnerable position. Yeah. However, since 
they've already sort of shown their hand, it's unclear that at this point that socializing with them would be that useful. So I have, I think, two options here. I sometimes like to give uh, writers a, a low conflict option and a high conflict option depending on, you know, how they're feeling. So low conflict option is just get through the rest of the semester, get through the next five months, do exactly what you've been doing, um, show up, do the work, leave. If they say or do something passive aggressive, ignore it. And then afterwards, you know, do something that feels good to you, call a friend, talk about it, um, do something that kind of acknowledges, I just spent a couple of hours with people who treat me like I'm not a person and that hurts. And so I'm going to kind of tend to my own emotional needs right now. And that can be anything from journaling, seeing, uh, you know, if you have uh, counseling services available through your program, seeing a counselor, talking to a friend that you trust, um, whatever else you need to do um, such that you only view them as people who can help me get the grades that I need and then I never have to think about them again. That's a perfectly fine option. Um, and and you can just continue to remind yourself the level of their hostility is not actually commensurate with anything I'm doing. I think one of the things that can be hard if you are as as what it sounds like a pretty reasonable and compassionate person, it, it can feel like, well, if I were th- if I were this level of unkind to somebody else, it would mean I was furious and it would mean they had done something truly horrible. So I must the problem must be somewhere within me um, because you do not, by virtue of somebody else's size, think of them as more of a person or less of a person. Um, but to keep reminding yourself, um, I challenge their absolute loathing of fat people. And that's what that is. It's not discomfort. It's not concern about health. It's absolute, like, their own panic, fear of loss of control, fear of death, fear of uncertainty. Um, and they hate fat people. Um, and you are getting the brunt of that. And it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty brutal. Um and to just remind yourself, this has absolutely nothing to do with me and everything to do with them. Yeah. And uh, it's so unfortunate that um, not only is the society so fat phobic, but the medical field is intensely fat phobic. And again, mm-hmm. this question of pretext, right? Health is used as a pretext for people to show concern, but it's really that concern trolling that, um, you know, velvet cloaked viciousness yeah. um, that... Uh, folks get targeted with i mean i just i love the i love the high and the low and i would add sort of the stealth too like then there's always the passive aggressive response right which is like i baked cookies or hey let's (laughs) go to the movies like the the other possibility is to sort of escalate the social dynamic um and i just put that on the table so that you have a full array (laughs) of possibilities i i mean yeah only do that if that sounds fun to you Um, but i do kind of like cackle at the idea of just like really like twisting it in and just showing up with tons of baked goods. But I also, yeah, only if you think that's funny and fun, don't go out of your way to try to win them over or to conciliate them. Yeah. And for me, it's not about, it's not about actually winning them over. It's like, you know, kindness as um, F you, you know, kind of like keeping coals on their heads. Yes, Yes. exactly. Yeah. I always like to have that option available. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it were, uh, even if you didn't want to actually go to the movies, just doing a lot of, hi, how are you? It is so great to see you. What have you been up to today? There you go. Um, But like maybe two degrees less sarcastic than that. So it's not (laughs) quite as obvious, but like just enough. Um, And then the high conflict option um, is if you you know, whoever's teaching this course, if you have an advisor of any kind going to them and saying, like, here's my concern. Um, Here are the comments they have made about, like, gay people and fat people. Um, I'm also, frankly, concerned about how they will treat their patients. I cannot keep working with them. I need to be reassigned. 
Um, if you feel like you have that kind of support in your program, that is a higher conflict option. They might get more mad at you. They might get um, disciplined in such a way that actually helps them to, uh, you know, reconsider whether or not their attitude right now is going to be good with patients. Um, I don't know what the outcome there would be, but if you're feeling a little like, yeah, let's fucking do something uh, about this, I think that that would frankly be a good option to pursue. I agree. Um, but yeah, on the tips for not caring, that one's hard. E- even if you remind yourself constantly, these are assholes whose good opinion I don't really want, it still hurts to spend time with people who won't look you in the eye. Um, it's painful. And, and I would just say to that, if you feel like I do have to see this one through, um, plan for both before and after being around people who care about you, sharing your feelings with somebody that you can trust, and doing something that relaxes and calms you. I agree. I also am a firm believer in environments like that in having something tactile Mm. like that can be a great time to have something in your pocket Mm -hmm. like you know you might write on a piece of paper like these insert expletives don't care about me and will be out of my life in five months right and fold that piece of paper up and have it in your pocket and like touch it or like flip it around in your hand while you're there with them just something that you can touch and be connected to Mm -hmm. while you're with them that reminds you of what's true. And the other thing that I would say, too, is like um, a lot of times we can be down on ourselves like, oh, why am I letting this get to me? Mm -hmm. You know, we can feel like, oh, if I were stronger or if I were this or if I were that or that I, um, you know, that it wouldn't get to me. But the truth is, like, it hurts. Mm -hmm. You are working with a group of people Um, In the same profession, a caring profession, it's not unreasonable to expect that you should be able to have warm or at least civil connections with those people. And, you know, being in that kind of school environment is really isolating. This is the human contact that you have. And, you know, anytime people are behaving in those hostile ways, it does get to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I I just echo all of the self-care advice that Danny gave as well. Yeah. And again, it makes so much sense that this hurts, like scapegoating, you know, low-grade shunning, making it explicitly clear that they don't see you as a person the way they see each other as people. Those are designed to hurt um, they would hurt anybody no matter how much they love themselves. So um, even if it just helps you to sometimes have kind of like a running thought in your head of like, I'm a person. Right. Um, I'm a person who deserves respect and friendliness. Or even like, um, this is helping me to think about how I never want to treat my patients. Yes. The only other thing I would add is if there's a, I believe it's a group of eight, it's possible that there are some ringleaders and then there are some other folks who are sort of going along. Mm-hmm. Um, but there may be folks who are sort of silent because they, uh, you know, aren't necessarily in agreement. So yeah. I would say, you know, just uh, we don't have a lot of information, but consider the possibility that there may be um, some form of support within the group. Um, I wouldn't say to count on it. And obviously other folks haven't been speaking up. Um, but just, you know, sometimes we have more support than we know, especially when people are using oppressive and dominating language. Other folks sometimes do feel bullied into silence. Right. Yep. And I'll, I'll throw one last thought in there, which, again, it's totally your call and it will depend on how kind of steady you're feeling. But um, I, you had mentioned earlier the sort of like if someone says something passive aggressive to you, one option that you have is to say, is there something you want to say to me? Um, and if somebody does this, like, bye, you can always just kind of calmly stop and say, you sound like you have something you want to say to me. Would you like to? Um, my guess is 
they will become immediately flustered and panicked and look like a damn fool. Um, Again, you might not feel up to taking on a group of eight with that dynamic, but if you have a day where you're feeling like, man, fuck these people, especially like when you're in the fourth of your five months, like if you're feeling ready at that point to like just let that one roll, that might feel a little good to say. Um, And, you know, I just I hope you graduate soon and that you never have to see any of them again. And I hope that they all end up um, changing their specialization so that they do not have to interact with vulnerable people in need because I worry about how they will treat vulnerable people. That's right. Okay, so moving on to uh, this next one is um, I'm excited. I think we have a lot of um, good advice we can give this person. Uh, The subject is I'm Jewish and butting heads with my girlfriend's Mormon family. Dear Prudence, I'm a lesbian in a loving relationship with another woman. Although our relationship hasn't been very long, it's very solid with open communication and a great understanding of each other's needs. Everything is great between us. The only issue is her family. My girlfriend was raised as a Mormon, and although she's left the church, the majority of her family are all still members. I am Jewish, and I'm currently undergoing the process of Baal Teshuva. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I apologize in advance if I have mispronounced it. Um, But it's a phrase that essentially means returning to the path and becoming more religiously observant. My religion is very important to me. My girlfriend is very supportive. Her family, however, is less than welcoming. Her father, who we stayed with briefly when I was visiting her for pride, said about 10 words to me over the course of three days. He's left the church as well and is separated from her mother, who I have yet to meet. I was hurt, although I wasn't incredibly surprised. It's important to me to get along well with her family, although we certainly don't have to be close friends, as my girlfriend and I anticipate moving further up north and away from both of our families once we're attending graduate school. We also don't plan to celebrate Christian holidays at all, with or without her family, which I fear will become a point of contention. I'm hurt by her father's lack of interest and concerned that I'll continue to get the cold shoulder from her family. While this is undoubtedly a bigger issue for her, her parents were emotionally and physically withholding and abusive growing up, and I know that she still faces challenges with them. I find myself uncomfortable around them. We're hoping to attend a family gathering together where I can meet her mother and siblings, but I'm sure that this will be an event filled with tension. I don't have any intention of hiding who I am, nor do I think it would really be possible to do so. All of these factors, I feel, will lead to invasive questions and challenges with her family. And while I have a slow-burning temper, I can be pushed over the limit. I don't want to leave my girlfriend alone with her family during these events for a number of reasons, including her safety, but I also don't want to cause conflict simply by existing around them. Is there any way for me to have a rewarding relationship with her family, or should I just step to the side? I want to be able to support my girlfriend and build relationships with her younger siblings. I'm anticipating a long, possibly lifelong relationship here, and I wouldn't want my first time meeting her mother to be at our wedding. Well, you have a lot of challenges here, but one of the first things that I just want to say here is just the bigger issue. Um, There are a couple of big oppressive dynamics that are on the table here. Um, Well, at least three, right? So we've got um, homophobia, we've got anti-Semitism, we've got Christian dominance, and probably some just good old generic patriarchy. And so One of the things that I want to say is that it can be hard to find individual solutions to what are these huge global problems, Mm -hmm. right? And so when I hear you say that it's important to you to get along well with her family, what I have to say is you may need to grieve some of that dream, at least in the beginning of the relationship, right? Dad has already shown that he does not know how to act. 
And, you know, we don't know what's going on with mom, but if um, there's emotional withholding and abuse in the family, you know, these parents have some deep-seated difficulties that are much bigger than their relationship with you. And um, who wouldn't want to get along well with the family of the person they love? Of course you want that. And at the same time, I think it may be important for you to adjust your expectations so that you... um, can have goals here that are realistic goals that you can have the satisfaction of meeting. Right. Yeah, I I, I hear all of that. I, I get this sense that the letter writer and her girlfriend are both youngish if they're considering um, going to graduate school in the future and um, are kind of nervous about the prospect of not spending a holiday for the first time with the extended family. So, you know, I just want to start by saying this may be one of your first times encountering the idea of planning long term with somebody's family. I totally understand um, the desire to be helpful to your partner. Um, I, I totally agree with you I, uh, in that I think it's important to revise some of your expectations. I feel like a little bit what might be at play here for you um, is that sort of like best little gay person in the world syndrome, <laughs> uh, which is a, a reference to a gay memoir from the 70s called The Best Little Boy in the World and kind of has to do with this idea of um, I can make up for homophobia by being so lovable, so understanding, so um, accomplished that even these like abusive homophobic jerks will eventually be won over um, by my just innate goodness. I will be the little orphan Annie to their mean old daddy Warbucks and I will, um, you know, heal the system from the inside. So, uh, you know, when I hear that kind of like, yes, her parents were emotionally and physically abusive growing up. Yes, they don't speak to me. But my dream is to someday be really close. Um, I'm getting a little bit of that. And again, I don't want to be hard on you, letter writer, and say like, you know, dream smaller. You know, I, I don't want to criticize you in that. I just think it's important to say, um, while I understand wanting to be a, a source of solace to her younger siblings, I think um, you are not going to be able to heal her relationship with her family. And I think the best and most achievable goal for you is how do I support my girlfriend and figure out what she needs when she has to interact with her family? Again, I don't want to say that because they've been abusive to her, she needs to cut them off and you need to get her there. I understand that lots of people at various points in their life um, have different limited relationships with abusive family members because part of it's worth it to them or they don't feel ready to cut them off. Um, and that's okay. But um, I, I just really want to stress um, your ambitions here should be only for um, your relationship with your girlfriend, not for getting her dad to like you um, or ensuring that um, you're going to have fun, friendly relationships with her mom and siblings. So like to that end, when you have to be around them, having a plan together of if they do or say something that crosses this line, we leave and and really being prepared to do that. Because again, it doesn't sound like you're confident that she would be physically safe alone with them. And that to me says you all need an exit plan um, if you plan on even just getting lunch with them. Yep. And the other thing that I would add to about family is that in building your relationship with your partner, that's why in the queer community, this issue of chosen family is so critical, yeah. you know, and um, that these, this is her biological family and you're figuring out how to contend with them. But just because you don't, uh, you know, 
if they are not able to have caring and healthy relationships with the two of you, that doesn't mean that you don't have family, that that's why chosen family is really important. And look around in your community, both in your community or in your religious community, as well as in your partner's uh, communities and see who you would like to build closeness with. Because at the end of the day, the people that, you know, we have in our biological families may or may not be the people that we choose to have family with. And I really appreciated uh, what Danny was saying about, um, you know, what we decide to do with emotionally withholding or abusive family members. It varies case by case. There's no one size fits all or right or wrong. But the most important thing, um, part of how abusive dynamics live on is when uh, it's set up that our choice is these really problematic relationships or isolation. Right. So whatever you can do to build really healthy and loving community will allow these relationships to take their right size, which is like, okay, this is my girlfriend's family and, you know, we're engaging with them, but, uh, you know, we get to decide. The other thing that I'll say, particularly for folks who are in college, a lot of times there is financial dependence, right, for younger people. And then that's extra hard because a lot of times in order to get through school or to get these resources within a family, you need to, um, you need to play the game in a particular way. And that makes it really hard uh, when there are abusive dynamics. So I just want to speak that aloud as well. And uh, I think the most important thing there is just to make intentional decisions about what you will and won't do. And then uh, the truth is a lot of times, even after any financial uh, dependence may be over, folks just are in the habit of feeling like they must do this or go and be with these folks. And again, like you actually don't have to. And that part of getting out of those abusive family dynamics are number one, not feeling like you have to rescue by being the best little gay person in the world. Um, And also that you don't have to take care of those family members' feelings. They may not like it. Um, if you say, you know, actually, I'm not coming around for such and such holiday because you were so abusive mm-hmm. the last time I was there. Folks don't want to hear that, but it can be very powerful and can model yeah. really powerfully for younger siblings who will be calling you, you know, uh, who may be calling you later on because you were the only one who was behaving rationally in a crazy situation. Yeah. So, yeah, I, yes to all of this. And I think the only kind of concluding thoughts I have here are, you know, the question of, is there any way for me to have a rewarding relationship with her family? No. Um, that's not to say I don't have hope that they could eventually um, experience some change and some remorse and and try to make some amends. Um, if that ever happens, that will be a process that will take years. Um, it will have to start within them. Um, and I don't think that you will be the person to jumpstart it. Um, so I think to let go of that dream is important. Um, And then I think to really focus on, you know, we don't plan on celebrating Christian holidays at all with or without them. Yeah, you are right to fear that that will be a point of contention. It will. Um, And I think to save your energy for supporting your partner in those moments and remembering you don't need their permission not to celebrate Christian holidays. Um, And also, again, just because I think it's important to figure out ways to support her, but it's also just as important for you to say there are certain lines um, that if they get crossed, I will need to leave for my own well-being and safety. I want to let you know about them in advance. I don't want to leave you high and dry. I hope in those moments that you will come with me. If you don't choose to, 
we can reconnect afterwards. Um, but I need you to know that like this, this and this are my limit. And I will leave if that happens. I will do my best to leave calmly, but I will go um, and we will meet up later. Um, you know, you, your job is not solely putting up with any kind of treatment because of your partner's own relationship to her family. And so I just really stress, spend some time hopefully talking about this with other friends of yours who are like queer, non-Christian, both have dealt with abusive family dynamics, any of any and all of the above um, to get some support in figuring out what are my lines. Mm-hmm. And I just also want to encourage you, like, this is a place where turning to your faith might be really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, and also... Um, just hoping that the faith community that you're building and developing is one that is open and welcoming for you as a lesbian, right? Because there are so, you know, in so many faith communities, you know, there's homophobia and intolerance and just really wanting to encourage you as you're returning to the path to find faith communities that welcome all of you. um, That can be places that you turn to um, in times like this, both with these questions, but also um, to receive solace. Yeah. Yep. Yes to all of that. And good luck. This is hard. Um, I, I, I absolutely relate to, I'm remembering now I had a, I was at one point in a relationship after college with somebody whose family was not thrilled about her um, sexuality. And I was very like, I'm sure they'll come around if they meet me. I'm delightful. Um, and and you are. Yeah. I'm I'm a you know I'm a person I'm I'm complex um and of co- of course like she knew the situation way better than I did um and you know I was like no 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 let's try it let's try it I totally want to meet your your siblings I'm sure it'll be great it was the most uncomfortable afternoon of my life and afterwards I received a very long letter um from her sibling about how uh, inappropriate our relationship was um and how I'll never forget this one how um I may be a very nice person but uh, meeting me felt like if his father had a mistress and he had to meet her um, and it was just one of those things where I was like, wow, yeah. well, she tried to warn me about this, didn't she? Um, that was just a, a, a real misfire on my part. I was just so convinced. I'll okay. just be so charming. Well, and I have to say that if delightfulness, um, was a cure for homophobia, there wouldn't be any homophobia, <laughs> right? Like right. folks are plenty delightful and it's, and that's the thing, right? All of these prejudices and oppressive behaviors are completely irrational. Right. They are not based on, you know, homophobia isn't based on anything being wrong with queer people. Racism isn't based on anything being wrong with people of color. It's an irrational, deeply held emotional prejudice. And it doesn't matter how many delightful people you meet from the community that you uh, have this irrational prejudice towards it's not going to fix it yeah. because it's held in some whole other part of the person's being yeah. um, and new information doesn't land. And that's sort of the, that's the problem there that folks are seeing the world in a distorted way. Right. And, and that's so useful. That's, that actually kind of brings us to the next letter really beautifully. Cause I think in both of them, one of the things we bump up against is some of the, um, limits of if everybody comes out, we'll solve homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, whatever. Um, and again, that's not to say that coming out can't be really good and powerful and that there aren't certain strategies that can often be effective with people who are maybe like situationally homophobic more than like dyed in the wool. Um, but that it's not the cure-all to any of those things. Um, all right. I think this next letter is all you. 
So the subject is permanent closet. Dear Prudence, I'm a lesbian from a country that isn't tolerant at all when it comes to queer people and our rights. My family is much more progressive than others in our community, but that doesn't mean much. If they knew I was queer, I'm pretty sure they would attribute that to messed up hormones, I'm a cis woman, and view it as a medical anomaly, dismiss it as me being influenced by my American social circle and queer friends from college, and otherwise reject that my sexuality could be a valid part of my identity. They would always see it as artificial or a corruption of me. I'm still very close with my family, despite living and working in the U.S., and in the age of social media, there's no way I would be able to carry on a serious long-term relationship with a woman and be able to hide it from them. I'm in the closet when it comes to my family and anyone I know from back home, and lately I realized that there's no eventual coming out for me. I'm not ready to come out, quote, yet, because there's no yet for me. And I think I might eventually marry a man who knows I'm a lesbian and keep up a het charade. Or I could never have a long-term relationship, as my family has no opposition to career-minded women who stay single. I just don't want to be treated with, oh, sweetie, you don't know any better. Have you gone to an endocrinologist? Look what America did to you for the rest of my life. I don't want to isolate myself from my family to keep a relationship secret, and I'm neutral enough to romance and intimacy that I believe I could stay closeted and be content. I've simply decided to never come out and to maybe even cultivate an image of heterosexuality. And I know my family well enough that I'm certain they won't come around or begin to respect my sexuality. However, I've been speaking to other queer friends who've been either skeptical or outright horrified at my calm resolution that I will simply live in the closet. One of my friends said it was an insult to the rights other lesbian women fought for. A couple of them said I should address this in therapy. So even though I'm not grappling with it on a personal level, I've begun to wonder if I'd be betraying queer people or turning my back on my community by acting like this. Is this another defense mechanism to try to avoid confronting my issues about coming out? Am I full of shit and only lying to myself? Is it socially damaging to embrace a permanent closet or disrespectful to other queer women? I wanted to ask someone who could offer an objective perspective. I'll start by saying I don't know that I've ever offered an objective perspective in my life. Um, So I would love to, to the best of my ability, letter writer, give you my thoughts and and tell you what I think would be some good things to keep in mind. Um, But I I don't want to make it sound like I'm going to give you the final answer on what's the good thing to do or the bad thing to do. Um, You know, there's a lot of questions in this one, and that that makes sense. This is a big, complicated topic. Um, So first, when you say, is it socially damaging to embrace a permanent closet? Potentially, yeah. Um, Is it disrespectful to other queer women? You know, I know you have met friends who say that they feel that it is. Um, I am of the opinion that uh, coming out should be something you do for yourself. Um, that it has to do with living the kind of life that you want and need to live um, and making choices that you feel like you can live with um, and balancing the many varying demands of connectedness and intimacy and um, autonomy and desire. And, uh, you know, you are not harming any lesbians by not coming out. It may be if you um, met someone and told them that you were out and then a year into the relationship said, surprise, you have to be in the closet forever. We'd be having a different conversation, but that's not your situation. There's no one you're hurting. Um, 
they might not be um, fans of your decision, but you can, I think, set aside the idea that like you're harming dead queer people or dead lesbians um, by not coming out to your family. That is, I think, an unfair burden to place on any individual queer person, and and you should not have to carry that weight. I agree, and I think. You know, again, this goes back to this question of individual versus collective. Like, in the collective, is it useful for queer people to come out? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that is really, really important. It's one of the many tools that the community uses to fight homophobia, invisibility, to develop political solidarity. That's right. Yeah. Right. But that's a collective tool. Does that mean that every queer person needs to come out in every single situation in every case? It does not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a distortion to say that because collective coming out is important, that that means that each individual person must come out. And also, I am much less concerned about any betrayal of people who fought for queer rights and much more concerned about any betrayal of yourself and your right to have the loving relationships that you deserve. And, you know, clearly you've thought a lot about this. And I, one of the things I also want to say about your friends who are making demands and insisting on certain things, you know, the price of coming out is really different for different people. Mm -hmm. So for some folks, you know, they risk losing their family. For some folks, they risk losing their job. For some folks, they risk violence um, or they risk their lives. And it looks like for you, given uh, your kind of national or cultural background, you risk losing a huge part of yourself. I want to push back on that a little bit and ask you, have you looked into who are the queer folks in your cultural background and how have they managed this? Because there are queer people everywhere in every country, every culture, every religion. And, you know, there are some folks who have trod this path ahead of you. It doesn't mean you have to do what they did, Mm -hmm. but I would want to make sure that you have that information. And if you are not aware of any queer folks who share your background, I would encourage you to do that research Mm -hmm. to see what has been done before. Um, But it's true that I think a lot of times for people in the U.S., they may not understand, you know, what, um, and the U.S., which is very homophobic, people may not understand the way homophobia looks different in different countries. And also in a U.S. society that's so individualistic, where the goal is like you're supposed to grow up and move away from your family, that in cultures where families stay much more connected and that have Uh, much more of a sense of extended family, that losing your family, um, you know, may just be a deal breaker. It may not be on the table. Right. Yeah. And without, you know, coming down too hard on the side of any, um, either of your friends or your family here, it, it, it does sound a little bit like my question is the queer friends who are kind of coming at you the hardest about this. I'm curious if they are, if any of them share your background, Mm -hmm. if they are all, um, Oftentimes, uh, white queer people 
um, since queerness is kind of the one way in which we experience any kind of um, separation from white supremacy or the norm or whatever, that's our biggest thing. And so we can kind of try to push that onto other people who are actually balancing like multiple oppressions. And um, if that's the case here, if that's where you're getting most of your pushback from people who maybe um, have a very particular context when it comes to being able to be like, emotionally and financially self-sufficient, um, the kind of relationships that they value the most. Um, if they are trying to put their context entirely onto yours and saying you're only doing this because you are weak and afraid, um, I think it might, again, I, I think it was a good suggestion to kind of look up in your own cultural context what are some um, queer figures that you might draw some some strength or support from um, to potentially seek out other queer people um, who share your background. Um, who who might understand the particular needs and desires that you are balancing, um, and that's not to again, that's not to say that everyone who's saying this to you um, just doesn't really care about you or is um, uh, totally dismissive. But that may be part of what's at play here. So you know, I think if anybody's coming to you and saying like you're the reason that like you know um, dead LGBT people are crying out for justice, that's just bonkers that's bananas um and that's how you get the kind of mindset where people think like it's good for the community if i forcibly out celebrities or whatever um and that's just a real mess so uh, the other thing i wanted to kind of acknowledge was that you said that um you're neutral enough to romance and intimacy that you think this would actually not be um giving up a lot to you so that's important um uh, i i think to always check in with yourself about that one like is this still true of me do i still feel this way um is there a reason that I might be inclined to say those things didn't really matter to me that much anyway, so I don't mind giving them up, which is certainly something I've experienced in my own life and transition? Or you may kind of do some soul searching and come to the conclusion like, no, this is actually a pretty fundamental part of who I am. Um, you might find, in fact, some solidarity or comfort or solace in seeking out people who understand themselves as part of an asexual or aromantic community. Um, if you find some support there, that's fabulous. If you don't, you don't have to. Um, but potentially look into that and, and kind of try to consider um, what does that look like for me? But, you know, the fact that right now you're not saying like, I'm devastated, but I'm willing to make this trade-off um, is, I think, useful information. One of the things that I would add is there was a lot in here around concerns about what your family would think of you and what they would say. And um, when you talk about them not accepting you, there's a real range of non-acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like people are going to talk smack about me and never take my relationship seriously or tell me that I'm going through a phase all the way to like, you know, shunning, um, you know, being unwilling to talk to you or violence, right? And so I think one thing sometimes for cultures uh you know, U.S. and Western culture is so individualistic. Um, there Sometimes there are other cultures that are just as aggressively collective, mm. right? And so it feels like, you know, impossible to have family members who don't like you, don't approve of you, um, are talking smack about you, think that you have a medical condition. And so I, I would need more information um, to really make a call there, but it's possible that this is a powerful place for you to stand up and uh, decide that you living your life and getting to be who you are is worth, you know, family members talking trash or never quite accepting you if you're still going to be able to stay connected mm -hmm. and, you know, get most of what you need 
from those relationships, even if approval isn't really on the list. So I'd also kind of question that part. Yeah. So I think, you know, the person who said that you like should address this in therapy was clearly saying some version of like, you're a mess, go get fixed. And that, again, I think is uh, not something you need to pay attention to. I also think therapy would probably be really helpful because what you're contemplating is really big and really profound and has a lot of um, repercussions into all sorts of different parts of your life. So I would say not that you need therapy, but that you deserve therapy. And I would recommend it again, hopefully with a therapist who is like, um, what's the phrase that I'm looking for? Like culturally sensitive. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. want somebody who's culturally competent, both for queer folks and for your sort of racial or ethnic background as well. Mm-hmm. And I would add, you know, um, I agree because I think sometimes people can use therapy as an insult. Yeah. Um, but it seems like this could be a wonderful opportunity for you to do some of what's called values clarification, mm-hmm. right? That you have a number of different values that are kind of clashing here and to get an opportunity to sit with somebody and really unpack all these questions. Um, you know, like I'm, you know, romance and uh, sexual activity isn't that important to me. So unpack that. Like Mm -hmm. you said, you know, am I leaning towards being asexual? Can I find some solace there? Or um, is there a way that feeling hopeless about being able to have an active sexual or romantic life and my community has sort of made me underplay Mm -hmm. how important that is to me? Like those are really important issues to be able to spend some time unpacking and look back at different parts of your life. And therapy can be a useful container to do some of that values clarification work. Yeah. So I'll just kind of conclude too. I think all this is useful. I I think one thing that will help you to bear in mind is um, you absolutely don't have to talk to your family about this right now. It also doesn't mean you have to make this decision once and then just stick with it forever. If five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, you decide you feel differently, you get to come out to your family later if you change your mind. So um, don't be too hard on yourself in terms of like, this is the only time I ever get to think about it and then I'm just done. I've made my bed. Um, And then I also think, you know, consider whether, again, maybe not now, but maybe in a few years, maybe you would feel comfortable saying to your family, you know, I have some gay friends and letting them kind of unload some of the stuff you're worried about getting onto your friends so that you're not having a conversation with them about yourself, but that you're at least letting them know, I don't feel the same way that you do. That's right. That might be an option um, that you would eventually want to pursue. Um, and then I think just with your friends, um, I, I would say some version of um, this is really hard for me. This isn't a decision that I make lightly. It's not a fun position for me to be in. My family is also really important to me, and I don't feel ready to sever that connection. So while I understand that you don't share this, I also right now really need some queer community because I I don't have any of that in my family. So if all you can give me is sort of um, a little strained silence around this, I would love the strained silence and for us to talk about something else. We could talk about your dating life, like basically just like, you know, you don't have to like what I'm doing, but please, please respect that I'm making the trade-offs right now that I feel comfortable in order to stay safe and connected with my family Um, and that, um, you know, berating me about, you know, you know, Phyllis and Dell is not going to make me 
uh, feel supported or, or helped out. And and if that's the best they can give you, great. And I hope eventually as time goes on, um, you can meet other queer people, um, maybe with a variety of different backgrounds and different experiences who are going to be a little bit more flexible with you. Yeah. And I would just add, I really appreciated what you said, Danny, as a strategy of like, you know, introducing or talking about gay friends to sort of suss out um, or help move your family forward. And again, you may find, you may be surprised that there's more diversity in the opinions that folks in your family have than you thought. Mm -hmm. And also figuring out who might be allies within your family. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I wish you the best. I, I, I can appreciate that you're in a really tough situation right now and that there's ways in which you're not getting the support you need for kind of two different parts of your identity from your different, um, groups of of family and friends and that can be really hard so i hope if only through a therapist right now you can start to get that but i also hope as you expand your social circle here um that you're able to find more people who at the very least can listen and just say that sounds really hard um you know and and just again like you're not asking anything of your friends you're not saying like hey i need you all to pretend not to be gay like at the very least, this does not directly affect them. Your family back home not knowing that you're gay is not affecting your gay friends here in the States or their ability to live their lives. Like, um, So I, I think, I hope that they can drop the whole, like the weight of the past is on your shoulders. So that's just goofy. All right, this last one is um, great. It's short. I have a short answer. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Subject, I introduced two of my friends, and now I regret it. Dear Prudence, I introduced two of my friends, and now I'm worried. One of them has a lot of money, and after knowing my other friend only two months is paying for her rent this month, new clothes, meals out, and they have planned three vacations together for him to pay for, including Disney World and Thailand. He's lonely and she needs money, so they say it works out. But she has a boyfriend, and I don't think it's appropriate for friends to pay for things like this for each other. Do I have any obligation to tell him to knock it off paying for things? Or tell her to knock it off suggesting things for him to pay for? Should I just stay out of it? Yes. Yeah, you know, do you have an obligation to tell your friend to stop spending money on stuff he wants to spend money on? No. And um, same goes for her. Um, I get that it's a little weird. And I can certainly imagine a sense of like, man, if I knew I could have just asked you for cash, you could be taking me to Disneyland. Um, But this is not hurting you. You weren't going to get that money anyways. I mean, mean, I'll admit that my first thought here is that the two of them clearly have an arrangement. Um, I think he is getting something out of this. um, And I think that he is very happy with his end of this arrangement. And so I don't think you need to worry that he is being taken advantage of. I think he is very satisfied with what he's choosing to spend his money on. I mean, the one thing I would agree, I think like mm, there's nothing. <laughs> I don't think there's anything to be gained by uh, telling them what to do with their time or their money mm-hmm. um, and uh, or scolding them for making these decisions. What I will say is what it does bring up is the complexity of class and often gender Mm -hmm. within friendships and within communities of friends. You know, how do people manage uh, being close and connected when there are big uh, differences in the kinds of resources that they have? And how is it that uh, people make decisions with friends about uh, who pays for things or what kinds of things that they pay for. Um, and I mean, I, 
while I do not encourage you <laughs> to get in there and uh, and and give them advice, I can understand why some kinds of alarms or red flags are going off for you. I think one of the things that I would ask you is how would it how will it or would it affect you if this friendship um, blows up or mm-hmm. you know if things end up going poorly between them, you know, will that affect your circle of friends? Will that be difficult for you? Because um, yeah, I think that class shows up in a lot of different ways in community of, in communities of friends in ways that can be odd or uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, if someone has a lot of resources and you see them giving them away to someone else in the community of friends, uh, this also might be an opportunity if there are resources that you want or need or would like to ask for. Instead of worrying about what he's giving to other folks, this might be an opportunity for you to think and step up if there's an ask that you have of your community. Yeah. And if, you know, if you feel like right now, you know, if there's one or both of them that you don't get to see anymore because they're both really like invested in this new friendship, you absolutely have grounds to say like, hey, I'm both pleased that you two really like, and this is to each one separately. I'm both pleased that you like each other. And I also just feel a little left out and sad. I, you know, I don't want to make you feel bad about enjoying one another's company or your financial arrangement, but I miss us. And I would love to feel like we could set aside some time to get dinner, just the two of us sometime that you totally have grounds to talk about. And, and I think that's going to be the easiest thing to do. But in terms of telling him to stop or telling her to stop, um, or, or suggesting to her that, um, you want to kind of get in between how she and her boyfriend are talking about this. Like, I just don't think that's going to get you anywhere. And again, my read of this situation is that her boyfriend knows exactly what's going on and is comfortable with it. Um, It is hard to hide three trips to Disneyland and uh, Thailand uh, from a partner. Um, My, my guess here is that he knows exactly what's going on and he's okay with it. Um, But even if he's not, that's for the two of them to hash out. Um, So I, I think you can mostly just speak to, um, I miss you. I want to see you. If you have a question for, uh, you know, you could potentially one time politely ask, like, how's everything going? What are you getting out of this? I'm curious. This seems really intense. Um, but if they don't seem inclined to share details with you, then I think you just got to go with this is an arrangement that does not involve me. That's right. And, you know, for me, the the flag in the letter here is the word appropriate Mm because appropriate is a judgment word. Right. Right. So it looks to me like you're judging them. And, you know, I you know, we all have judgments. So I think the other thing that I would ask you is sort of like, what button is this pushing of yours? Right. Mm -hmm. And just to explore, like, where is that button for you? Is it about? um, Yeah. Is it about money? Is it about people? people spending time with each other and what they're getting from each other? Is it, you know, sometimes, you know, we may have felt used in the past. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that as pushing our buttons, but I would, I would spend a little time exploring that because clearly you're upset about this. And then also, you know, think about what kind of friends are these to you? Like, are these folks that you're super close with? I appreciated what you said, uh, Danny, about, um, 
has this cut into your friend time, you know, with one or both of them? Has this shifted things? Or is this just really something that you're watching from afar and there are judgy feelings that are coming yeah. up that you want to express to them? Yeah. And I think and those I mean, are really different. I can totally relate to that. I've certainly introduced friends before who became closer friends with each other than with me. And that actually absolutely like activates like, you know, an insecurity and abandonment bell inside my own head of just yeah. like, oh my God, like, they like each other more than they like me. Um, and that can be painful and that makes sense. You're not a bad person for feeling that way. But, you know, there are ways and ways to talk about that well. Um, and while I do understand some of your feelings, I also think that there's just a limit to um, how appropriate it would be for you in turn to say, I don't think it's appropriate to have a friend who pays for stuff when you have a boyfriend. Uh, to which her response could only be, I feel differently and so does my boyfriend. In which case, mm -hmm. you know, you can't appeal to like Judge Judy to say like, no, you shouldn't do this. Like you just have to let that one ride as a choice that your friend makes that you wouldn't. Right. And, you know, I think it's interesting this question of like, uh, is it pushing some buttons around insecurity or feeling left out? And is the judgment a pretext for making their behavior wrong because it's pushing your buttons, right? So right. If, the, if it's pushing your buttons and you feel left out, but then you're, you know, some part of you is looking for a reason, like this must stop. Yeah. Um, when really the feeling behind it is, you know, feeling left out or feeling um, hurt. Right. Um, and yeah, I think, and the other thing I will say, you know, maybe the boyfriend doesn't know, like maybe it's shady, but even still... It's not for you to decide how other people should be handling their relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It would be different if maybe you were like, I, you know, know for a fact she's cheating on her boyfriend and I know for a fact her boyfriend doesn't know about it and I like him and I'm close to him and I want to share that with him. That would be a different situation, but it doesn't sound like that's the situation you're in. So um, there's just a limit to what you can and can't do here, which doesn't mean there's nothing that you can talk about. Um, but you got to stick to, I think as you said, your own feelings and what you need from each of those friends. And if it's just, I feel sad that I don't have a friend who wants to buy me a bunch of new clothes, I can relate. I also would love to have a friend um, who bought me a ton of new clothes. That'd be kind of awesome. Yeah, but, you know, you're not. he's not going to start spending that money on you if you complain enough about the two of them. So, you know, check to see what well you're trying to draw water from. That's right. That's it. I hope we did it. Yeah, this is amazing. So, I mean, and it's interesting to me the ways that there were threads between all of these really, really different questions, you know, so much about how do we stand up for ourselves? You know, what happens when people are saying one thing, but there's really something else behind it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really, I was surprised by that. It's not always, I think, that an episode comes together where I can see a sort of through line from each letter to the next. But this was one of those where it kind of felt like, oh, you all have sort of a, a different version of sort of the same problem. Yeah. Um, and that's always really interesting when that happens. And I hope everyone manages to fight their way out of their their own bramble patches today. That's right. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Come back soon. I will. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 